Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We're going to split up the episode once again today. For the first part, we're going to talk about the death of music sales, which is CDs and digital downloads appear to be on their last legs. And in the second half, we're going to do an artist to watch segment with the very excellent Soccer Mommy. But right now, we have Steve Knopper on the phone. Steve Knopper is a longtime colleague of mine at Rolling Stone who wrote, among other books, Appetite for Self-Destruction, the spectacular crash of the record industry in the digital age. And that's a story that has never stopped giving, has it, Steve? (laughs) Nope, I love going to that one. Thank you, Brian. So what's happening now is, first of all, it was announced that last year, digital downloads were surpassed by physical sales, CDs and vinyl. And some people, not quite understanding the context, were like, oh, great, CDs are back. Vinyl is beating everything, too. And when, in fact, while vinyl continues to surge, the actual issue is that streaming has taken over, of course. And CDs are actually in even bigger trouble than they've been continually over the last few years. Best Buy has announced they're going to stop selling CDs. There is a new Bruce Springsteen box set coming out, and you'd think that Bruce still has some fans who are into physical media. This is the box set, the second part of his catalog, the middle part. The first part was remastered and released a few years ago. This is the middle part, including Human Touch and Lucky Town and stuff. When Sony announced this box set, they announced a vinyl version and that it will be on streaming services. No CDs. So what's happening here, Steve? Well, I mean, the main thing that's happening is that streaming, yes, there is a blip in vinyl, and there has been for many years, but it's still, real, even though it's it's been a consistent increase, it's still a blip. It's still very small sales in the proportion of things. But what's happening is streaming is taking over the world in the, in the music business. And, you know, I wrote that book in 2009, so nearly <laughs> 10 years ago, and back then it just seemed like everything was dying. You know, uh, uh, there were no more sales. Napster and and piracy was killing everything. Everybody was sad. There were layoffs everywhere. You remember, um, but now it's happy times are here again. You know, I, I talked to a, a, a top attorney not long ago who said, um, you know, the Grammy parties in the record business were getting pretty sad there for a while, but they're they're coming back. They're bigger again. I'm very happy for the for all the record execs as are we all. <laughs> Um, but one of the things is that it's not like it was a secret in 2009 or in 2006 or even earlier that streaming was probably going to have to be the future. There was a road to this. There were a lot of people who knew that that had to be the place that things were going. I remember actually in the late 90s, people were talking about the Celestial Jukebox. That was Spotify. The idea of the Celestial Jukebox was you know, every song available at any time. And what it took to get there was, I think, essentially the smartphone. Because before that, I was, I attempted to be an early adopter of streaming, which was not easy back in the day. There were these horrible services, MusicNet, and what was the other one? That's a real trivia question, Steve. Can you do the MusicNet? What's the other one? PressPlay. Oh, you killed it. So MusicNet and PressPlay. I think, especially young people are probably not aware, the, the record industry post-Napster. And in fact, let's take a step back. So the, yeah. the really funny thing is, as you well know, in the late 90s, we had the Celestial Jukebox on our computers. It was illegal and it was called Napster, right, Steve? That's correct. Yeah. Napster was a pirate service. I mean, back in 1998, 
you know, when, when CD sales were ascendant, I, I was just looking at the figures for how many CDs were sold um, in 1998, which was 20 years ago, and it was 578 million um, compared to last year in the U.S., which, is, which was 89 million. But, I mean, back then, that was the only model the record business had. And all these executives just and lawyers and everybody else just wanted to protect that. That's all they wanted to do was sell CDs. Everything was going so well. Suddenly you had Napster pop up, which was a pirate service. It wasn't authorized, and it allowed people to, to share files for free over the, the, you know, the Internet, which was this new fancy thing that was confusing to a lot of people. And from, um, from that moment when Napster was functional, it created this world in which you could essentially think of the name of the song, type the song, and hear the song. And the record industry's sort of mistake or whatever was thinking they could in any way forestall that future. Once we got a glimpse of that, we were never going to go back, right? That's right. That's right. The record industry tried to stop it instead of saying, I mean, there were some efforts made to make a deal with Napster. And that's a whole complicated story. Yeah, we both reported really, on that, and it's fascinating. And then it, it, it could have happened. They could have had a, a world where they, they sort of made a deal with Napster, and we had legalized streaming in 1998. Imagine that. That, that could have happened. Well, yeah. they were talking about tethered downloads from Napster. There's all sorts of things that could have happened. And instead, yeah. but, so a few things happened. Um, before iTunes launched, <laughs> this is ancient history now, Steve. What people probably don't remember now is there was this period between you know roughly 99 and two what what year did itunes launch 2003 yes so during that period there was very little ability to legally get music you couldn't even legally buy downloadable tracks really there was and we'll go back to music net and press play these absolutely hideous services that only had half each the the labels kind of split up so you know two of them or whatever had each one so you couldn't even get a full catalog from each of them if you wanted the full catalog you had to subscribe to both they had something like i think you could only listen to like 25 songs a month or something insane like that it was just awful and i but 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 that at the same time there was something called rhapsody that was pretty good it was kind of like spotify before spotify which but but the issue was back then there were no smartphones so right. so the in-between step then became the iTunes store and the iPod. And that kind of forestalled stuff for a while. Is, is that, does that seem right to you? Yeah. I mean, looking back, that's what, it, that's what it seems like. I mean, at the time when the iTunes store came out, it seemed like this revolutionary, crazy thing. Like, oh, my God, we're going to be able to buy 99-cent tracks, and that's the future. And how is that going to change everything? We're going from selling $15 CDs to, to selling 99-cent tracks. That's going to destroy the industry. But you're correct. When you look back in retrospect, it seems like the transition to the streaming world. I actually, in uh, showing my age here, in 2002, I wrote a piece in which I reviewed Rhapsody, MusicNet, and Press Play for Entertainment Weekly. And uh, MusicNet at that point was $9.99 a month, a familiar sounding price. Access is limited to 100 downloads and 100 streams. (laughs) You could only stream 100 songs, and it only had three of the five major labels. The coolest part I wrote, um, at least they're trying. Also, the, the software is still in beta, so it's prone to crash and packed with infuriating bugs. The organization of the music is poor, and the limitation of 100 downloads and streams is wrongheaded. Press Play had three of the five major labels. They had unlimited streaming, and you could have 10 portable downloads a month. And I said, the Microsoft Digital Rights Management 
software that comes with the service is problematic. When we tried it recently, the DRM prevented us from hearing any music at all. That's probably a bit more security than they had in mind. So these things were disasters. But then, yes, so iTunes was a revelation. But even at the time, there were, again, there were people, I'm sure you talked to people in the industry who said, this is all a stopgap, streaming is coming. And there were other people in the industry who were very skeptical of it because they didn't see how the economics would work. Yeah, I mean, back then there was kind of one company, mainly, waving the flag for streaming, and that was Rhapsody. And they were really evangelists for it. You know, they were going out and talking to people like you and me and corporations and the record industry, and they were saying, this is the future. No, really, we swear it's the future. But it was really difficult. I mean, it was better to use than MusicNet and Pressplay, but it was just really difficult. It was nine ninety five. You could only do it on your desktop, you know, and, and it was hard to get all the songs, and there were limitations, and it, 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 was, it pointed to the future, but it wasn't quite there yet until really smartphones kicked in. And then, and then that was really what, what showed the way. Poor Rhapsody. Rhapsody was really kind of the MySpace to the Facebook. They were the Spotify. Friendster. Yeah. They were the Friendster, yeah, even better. Little... Yeah, they were the Friendster. They were totally the Friendster. But they were evangelizing. I talked to so many people from Rhapsody back then saying, listen to us. This is the future. But here's the thing. Spotify labels are happy about Spotify. Some artists are happy about Spotify. A whole lot of others are not because they're not really making that much money on it. It seems to mostly favor either people who don't have labels and are compensated directly by Spotify or very big artists. And it does kind of leave the question. When I talked to the CEO of Spotify uh, many, many years ago when they were first about to launch in the USA... Daniel Eck, he had some idea at the time that maybe somehow they would be convincing people to buy music anyway. This vague idea, because even he seemed to know that this wouldn't work as far as compensating artists properly. And then there's the other problem that isn't Spotify's own business model not a profitable one, and it's, uh, it's unclear how it's going to go forward as a profitable company, even as it raises money. And you have competitors like Apple Music, which is catching up to it, Title, which does their own thing. YouTube is coming. It's very hard to differentiate because they all essentially have the same catalog and they're all trying to figure this out. So how, how do you see all that playing out? <laughs> That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. But, um, but basically, uh, I mean, Spotify is, is, uh, has a difficult business model because in order to function, it needs to have licenses for all the content from all the top major record labels. And, you know, it used to be the major record labels were worried about piracy and they were losing their business model. And when they were dealing with Apple and Steve Jobs and the iTunes store, they didn't have much leverage. It was, it was sort of one-stop shopping and Steve Jobs could kind of say, you take it or leave it. Here's our deal. But now the labels have, there's a bunch of different streaming services. There's Apple music and, and various others. And so Spotify has to pay big, big money, tens of millions of dollars to license all this stuff. And the labels own equity in Spotify, which means that when Spotify goes public, which it is planning to do later this year, um, the labels are going to get you know a windfall of perhaps certainly hundreds of millions of dollars and perhaps even into the billions. Um, so labels are, are in a pretty good position with this. And as you say, the, the question is, will all that money that's good for the record industry um, trickle down to artists? And that's a big question and with a lot of facets to it. You know, the big artists are, are starting to make money from Spotify, as you say. The smaller ones aren't quite there yet. But in addition to that, there's a lot of problems, especially with like songwriters and publishing. Um, there, there's some issues. There have been some lawsuits. Some are still pending about whether Spotify and the labels who are you know, handling the contracts uh, for artists with regard to Spotify. There, there's some question of, of 
whether this is all kind of being administered properly. And not to mention, as, as I touched on before, Bloomberg did an article, Bloomberg Business Week, about this, and they said there's only one flaw in Spotify's business model. It doesn't make any money. The service yeah, has reported yeah. higher losses in three consecutive years. It's hard to be profitable when music rights holders collect more than 75 cents on every dollar that comes in. Right. So you have it. It's working for consumers. It's working yeah. temporarily for labels, but it's not working for either Spotify or a lot of artists. So like I said, it, it's, and you have Apple breathing down their neck. So it's an interesting yeah. kind of thing. How, and how is Amazon. It, and, yeah. Amazon, and Amazon too. How is this going to play out? Do you have any sense? I mean, I think what's going to happen, Spotify has been kind of doing this business model where they're just trying to crank up, stick to their model and, and get to a point where they can do an IPO and make a ton of money. Um, you know, will it be the same service after that in the long term? I don't know. My guess, and, and other people in the industry have said this to me, is that eventually we're going to see streaming be run by the big tech companies. There will be Amazon streaming, Apple streaming, and, uh, and Google streaming, because Google, of course, owns, owns YouTube. Um, and, you know, and all those companies, one way or another, can afford to kind of do streaming as a loss leader. Yeah, um, Apple Music is kind of doing it that way now because Apple Music doesn't really make that much money in the in the scheme of things off of their ten dollar a month streaming service. They make money off of people buying iPhones and other hardware. And so, if you can get people in to say you you get Apple Music if you get if you buy an iPhone, that's good. That's what they've been doing all along. And the same thing with Amazon. Like Amazon is starting to go into this voice active activated Alexa thing, which could be big. We'll, we'll see, but it, it could certainly it has potential to be very big. Um, plus all the other stuff that Amazon sells. So music is now perhaps destined to be a loss leader for tech companies. Very sexy, very exciting stuff. It, it has been. Yeah, and it has years. been. I mean, that was true at the iTunes store as well. Now, Steve, there's very little hope for the CD format, is there? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it, maybe it'll come back at some point as kind of a retro format, the way vinyl records did. And, and nah. of course, you know, there's record stores everywhere. I was just in Austin, Texas, and I went to the Great Waterloo Records. And there's CDs everywhere, and and you know I, I'm a Spotify subscriber, and I've got I purchased dozens of CDs at Waterloo over the years, um, and I didn't buy any, and I felt sad about that, you know, and and uh, I, I'd like to think these record stores will survive. They sell CDs, they sell vinyl. They'll survive yeah, by I, you know you see vinyl as a blip because you're looking at it from the very broad sense of the music industry but that blip sure. is keeping a lot of stores alive and is is a a pretty strong cultural movement in itself yeah and you're right in in sort of the macro sense it is a blip at the same time you know if you're a store staying alive from it it, it feels pretty great and i can see a world forming where it is some form of streaming and vinyl because there are always going to be those people who want to purchase something and hold it in their hands and i think vinyl makes more sense than a cd which can be precisely digitally replicated I, I was i had this debate with uh, david brown on an earlier incarnation of this show you know on title when you stream at at the hi-fi quality you're literally getting exactly the same file as a cd via streaming there is no difference and this is something i have a little trouble explaining to people for some for some reason but so therefore you don't need your cd <laughs> <laughs> you just don't. You know, I I can understand assuming streaming goes away or are you assuming that, you know, that the internet goes away, but if the internet goes away, you're not going to have your electricity, you're not going to be able to play your CDs, so you're probably fine. Just throw away your CDs. You're good. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, could be right. You know, I I uh, I mean, I see that point and and I have a lot of people who ask me about vinyl all the time, but 
You know, I spent most of the 80s and 90s replacing, like meticulously replacing all my LPs with CDs. And uh, it took me forever and it was incredibly laborious and expensive. And I'm not going back, man. I I mean, I love records, but uh, I'm just not going to go back and replace all my CDs again with records. So it's streaming for me looking forward. The the physical representation of it, although it is important for many people, and I, I agree with your point that it's great to keep record stores alive. I love record stores. But uh, for me personally, I'm not going back. I feel you. I mean, I just I do hear people say, oh, I need to buy music. I need the physical thing. That's why I like CDs. And I, I just feel that makes more sense with vinyl or frankly with like a T-shirt. So there yeah. is room for technical innovation. But, uh, you know, it, it does feel like this world is set streaming and maybe vinyl and the CD as a dwindling category and certainly available in used form throughout the nation for the foreseeable future. Does that feel about right? That does feel about right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. CDs are definitely dwindling. Vinyl is definitely increasing, and streaming is just overwhelming. That's that's the, the way of the future. And real quickly, I mean, we we haven't touched as much on the fact that people aren't buying digital files, which seems to make the least sense of all to buy a digital file when you can stream an unlimited number for nine ninety nine a month. Why would you buy one album for nine ninety nine on on iTunes unless it's you know unless it's like Taylor Swift or something where she, where she hasn't put it on streaming? But short of that, it doesn't really make much sense. It seems like so. Yeah, I mean the only the only way I ever do it, the only reason I ever do it, and even this is becoming kind of extinct, um, is when I go on a plane. You know, I, I'll 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 download a couple of albums to listen to on the plane when I'm not uh, when I don't have Wi Fi available. But you know, Steve, you can do that with Spotify or Tidal. They, they you yeah, do the you local do downloads. Yeah, that, sure. That's. Uh, I mean, I still I still go through the motions. I'm still every time <laughs> I get a CD, I rip it onto a hard drive, and you know, I still occasionally buy some stuff. It's just habits at this point, and. I have this huge CD collection that I, and I'm sure you do as well that I've built up over the years. And it, it used to be, you had to have this in order to listen to the music. And now it just feels like hoarding. It's just, I have a daughter who's 15 and she and her friends come, come in and look at the collection and they're sort of like, why do you even have any of this? Steve, I have ditched my CD collection. I do not really own any CDs. <laughs> I have title. It has, it has like 5 million CDs. I do not own any CDs. I don't need them. Um, but yeah. except when they send me yeah. some in the mail and I need to listen to it. Anyway, so that was Steve Knopper. We were talking about the death of music sales. And you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. We're going to take a break. And when we're back, we're going to hear from Sophie of the exciting new act, Soccer Mommy. There's a lot of great guitar-based music coming right now, which I haven't been able to say for a long time. And a lot of it is from very young people. A lot of them are women. And one of the exciting albums in that category is from Sophie Allison, who records as Soccer Mommy. And she has her album Clean is out. And it's, it's a beautiful album. And we have her here, I believe. Hello. Hi. So where are you right now? I think you were en route to like a show and God knows where. Where, where, yeah. where, where. What are you doing? We just left Chicago about an hour ago. We're in DeKalb, <laughs> Iowa, I think. I think it's Iowa. Might still be Illinois. One of those two I states for sure. So you could be in a classroom at NYU right now. Instead, you're in, in Iowa. Does it feel like you're making the right decision? Oh, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, um, no regrets on that. 
let's hear the opening track on your new album, Still Clean, for a moment. In the summer, you said you loved me like an animal. Stayed beside me, just enough to keep your belly full. Then you took me down to the water, got your mouth So you started kind of doing bedroom recording. This is a little bit of a more of a, a hi-fi thing. You do a really cool thing in, in that particular song where I think you, you bring in the demo for a minute, right? What, mm-hmm. what's, a, what's that about yeah. for you? Um, that was just actually a cool idea the producer had, but I think it definitely goes with the like vibe of kind of showing the like bedroom aspect that a lot of my music had before this album. Um, because I was recording on my own or recording with friends. And it just kind of like, you know, has a drawback moment of like, this is the production side and then like a drop to the more, a second of the more intimate, like, you know, band camp recording type of sound that I used to have. You've been playing guitar since you were like five years old, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. What, what kept you, I mean, it's one thing like taking lessons as a little kid. What kept you playing and, and what, what kind of stuff were you learning o- over the years on guitar? Um, well, I mean, when I was young, I think what kept me interested is just that I liked writing songs. Hmm. Um, but as I grew older, I mean, I just like it. I found it like cool to learn, you know, stuff about like jazz playing and, you know, chords. And I loved chords. I was always a big fan of like learning lots of new chords and new voicings for chords. But yeah, just kind of like learning to be better at the instrument uh, became more interesting to me. Uh, just because I liked, I liked writing and I liked being able to have cool sounding chords and cool melodies in my music. You play. Yeah, I think you use a lot of like open tunings. You know, even if people you know aren't guitar players and aren't aware of that, you can hear that aspect of your sound. I mean, you know, you can hear that in, in things like everything from Sonic Youth to Joni Mitchell. It just you, it really makes the the chords sound different and, and it affects the sound. How how did that become such a big part of your approach? Um, well, when I first was making soccer body music, I wasn't doing a lot of open tuning, but I just kind of started experimenting with it for fun um, and found that it was a really good way to like kind of make yourself not be like stuck to the technical knowledge you had, kind of like knowing like that you could go to the four of this, uh, you know, of this key, key yeah. and then to the five or whatever, not knowing like the numbered progressions that are so often used and more just kind of like bring yourself back to like having no knowledge of how to like what chord you're playing even um, or like, you know, what the next chord you're going to play is because all of the shapes are totally different when you do a different tuning. How long a gap was there between, you know, writing this current crop of songs that, that were the earliest Soccer Mommy stuff before this album? And how long passed between the writing and recording of them and the, you know, posting them online? Were you just, did you guys just kind of like immediately start doing that or did it take a while to build up the courage or how did that work? Um, when I was first doing it, it pretty much like when I started recording my own stuff, it was pretty immediate like I would just kind of post it because I knew no one was really going to see it Uh, (laughs) but as I you know as it now it like is such a longer process it's kind of weird but yeah before it was just kind of like I'd make something and throw it out to the world pretty quickly um, just because there was no nothing to lose 
when doing it, and I just wanted to get the stuff out so I could work on something new. So you grew up in Nashville, and, and you know you were playing this whole time. But you, did you not really play in bands in, in high school? Was that was that something? Did you keep your playing to yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I played. I was at like an arts high school, and I played in like the swing band and the guitar quartet and uh, all that kind of stuff. But I didn't like play anything with my own music. Why was that? I just um, I didn't really think that like there was going to be an audience for it. Huh. For sure, that was part of it. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, I just, I didn't, I've never really been good at, like, working in a band with other people, <laughs> just because I don't really, like, pitch my own ideas if I'm working with other people and I don't say no to other people's ideas. So I never would have, like, wanted to really just be in a band. Rather, like, now I, just, you know, I have a band who plays with me, and, I mean, I let people use their own ideas, like, on their instruments and stuff, but... It's my songs at the end of the day. It's become part of your brand now to shout out Avril Lavigne's second album. Under, under I love song. Avril Lavigne. <laughs> <laughs> both albums. I mean, the first two are both great, but I think I had the second one when I was like, I mean, I, had, I think I had them both. I think I first got the second one when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I'm a huge Avril Lavigne fan for sure. It's funny because the the second one under my skin is is like the very like sort of goth dark metal evanescence like Avril. So what were you responding to at the, at that time in in that album? I just I mean I love that vibe of like kind of dark electric guitar, but like kind of singer songwriting music. It's like it's like evanescence meets Elliot Smith. <laughs> I don't um, know if I hear the Elliot Smith there, but I, I'll, I'll, I hear it. I hear it. The like, I hear it in the guitar stuff. What's like, the acoustic guitar kind of emo, like I because it's kind of half and half. Like it'll go from this like acoustic guitar verse to like evanescent style choruses. What, um, what song should we play from under my from under my skin? <laughs> don't tell me. No question. All right, let's let's hear Don't Tell Me from Avril Lavigne's Under My Skin, which it turns out to be influential on today's hottest music. Let's take it out. Describe the feelings that invokes in you to hear that now. We're just going to stay on Avril for a while. Such, such sadness. It's like childhood sadness that's rooted in you. <laughs> it's so deep. <laughs> and then you you also shouted out uh, Hillary Duff. This is really interesting, you know, just to approach this on a on a sort of historical level. When you were growing up, there really there was this period of rock influenced female pop stars, and that's kind of yeah. died, that's died out a little bit. But of course, I know it's so sad. But it left a lasting impression that you're you're part of the 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 heritage of that, which is really awesome in a way. I think actually in every way. I hope it comes back. That's what I can only hope is that there's more and more of it because I just truly miss the period of like pop artists doing like rock songs, basically. I really loved, and I'm not kidding, the, the first the Ashley Simpson album was really awesome mm-hmm. uh, in Great. that vein. What was your favorite Hillary Duff jam, though? Oh, God, that's hard. <laughs> um, I liked So Yesterday a lot. Oh, that was a good yeah. one. So uh, many good ones. Let's hear So Yesterday. <laughs> You wanna. You can change your clothes if you wanna. If you change your 
Anyway, so you you stuck with you stuck with guitar music. It really seemed for a while like even in indie that guitars just you know they were even for me. I think were were boring me for a while. Mm-hmm. And as a listener, and now it feels like people like you are, are finding ways of doing guitar music that's interesting again. Was it for you about working in that idiom, even as, you know, there were times when it didn't seem like that was the way things were going? So what is it about that for you? Um, it, I mean, it never bothered me because I get bored with guitar music, too. Uh, but it, it's just like, I mean, I think if you write a good song, it's going to be a good song. I think that's more the issue is that people just weren't writing good songs. I and think, maybe yeah. that's because, because like, you know, at a certain point, it's like the same thing with trying to use alternate tunings to get a fresh perspective. It just loses a little bit of perspective when you're playing the same instrument and the same chords. Um, it can get a little over overdone. Um, but I think part of why, like, bedroom rock is kind of allowing for there to be a fresh take on it is I think people are kind of learning to use guitars in different ways that just don't always sound like a guitar. Um, I think that's a really cool thing. Like St. Vincent does that a lot or even like Mitski uh, can kind of do that. Um, I think people are just learning to produce it and produce different like sounds out of a guitar than just like rock chords. Totally. And your point about songwriting is well taken. I mean, you especially, I mean, you're you're not afraid of, you know, writing really catchy melodies and hooks, which is something that I think vanished from indie music for a while. Tell me a little bit about your dog, which is a, a lot of people, one of people's favorite songs off the record. I don't want to be your fucking dog. This <laughs> is, is, um, is yeah. a repeated line. Where, where did that one come from? That one came from kind of a feeling of being pathetic in relationships and just kind of giving way too much when you're not even Mm. being asked to give that. Um, Just kind of, you know, giving too much of yourself into things and wanting to be more of your own person and not make your life about other people. Let's hear that great song. writes choruses that you love like where where does where does your idea of great hooks come from uh Mitski does yeah uh definitely i'm trying god this is whenever people ask me these kind of questions i have to just like scan my brain yeah um yeah i mean ashley simpson does totally he's got some great choruses but uh and taylor swift has some great choruses i think you said you were sort of like a closet taylor swift fan is that which I don't? Yeah, there's I nothing to be ashamed like of, by the way. Yeah, in middle I'm school. I'm not anymore. Okay, I was when I was like in middle school and like a tomboy, uh, but <laughs> now I'm I just I'm a Taylor Swift fan. I can say it now. I can admit it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's great. Nirvana, any any of that stuff? Any of that stuff? Oh, Hole. Yeah, Hole. Yeah. Hole. Yes. You know, Ashley Simpson sounds like pop hole. 
Totally it That's does. That's exactly what she sounds like. Her voice is exactly like Courtney Love. Another great song on your album is Scorpio Rising, which I think you've said is kind of the climax of the, the narrative in a way. Let's hear yeah. that for a moment. Kiss you We didn't get to the, uh, and we'll talk until morning hits the windshield and, and paints yellow lines on the field. Lovely imagery in that yeah. song. Where does, uh, lyrically, like, where do you look? Do you look to other songwriters? Are, are there are there writers of prose that inspire you? Where do you, where do you kind of come from on that? I don't know. I don't, I find it really hard to say I'm inspired by any artist because I never try to, like, write like someone. Yeah. Um, I do, I think... Mitski has amazing lyrics. I think Joni Mitchell has amazing lyrics. Yeah, I mean, I I loved like Leonard Cohen in high school, but I don't know where my style necessarily comes from. I think I just try to write in ways like try to write snapshots of moments that like capture an overall feeling. It seems like there's probably like a, a relationship being actual relationship being sung about on this album is does the subject of the song of these songs aware of these songs this is a, always a question you end up asking songwriters yes he is he's actually my boyfriend now so it worked great huh oh, so, so the narrative the narrative shifted okay okay happy yeah. ending <laughs> That's yeah intriguing have you started writing a, a new batch of songs um i have i'm very early in it but i have started i've got like a couple like two or three that are down. I saw someone at Reddit ask the funniest question in in uh, ask me anything. They're like, "Where do you see your music going?" Which is a really hard question. That's that's a daunting yeah. question. You were like, "I don't," you know. I guess pretty much the same, maybe darker. Does that still seem right? It's not going anywhere. It's, it's sticking around. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting. You said that you know, sort of dude rock can be really tiresome for you. You don't want to be in a in a room of of a bunch of guys talking about Guns and Roses. Is that? Yeah, God. <laughs> How does that come into your consciousness? Like, it's just, you just have a different canon and you're not interested in that canon. Is that the idea? I think I just don't like it. I mean, I think (laughs) when I hear, like, Guns N' Roses or something, I'm just like, this is, like, the lamest shit there is in the world. Like, it just sounds so lame at this point in my life (laughs) that I'm just like, you're really worshiping this? This sound? Because I just feel like you could write something that would sound like it could be, like, uh, you know old rock hit like as a joke that would be so like i just i don't know it just sounds so like shredding like such a shredder dude (laughs) sound that i'm just like you think this sounds like this makes you feel anything or is it just like you like blowing out i don't know even like if you're like oh well it just like shreds and it goes so hard there's just so much better like metal or like like doom metal music, you know, like much darker, cooler versions of that kind of music to me. 
but Springsteen you kind of like as as I do evid- like Springsteen. There's a different vibe there. It's like it's like Tom Petty. You know, there's a different vibe there. It's not like shreddy dude rock. It's like there's an emotional value to it to me. Totally. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking a break from your trip through Iowa to join us today. That was Sophie Allison of soccer mommy or who records as soccer mommy it's always tough when it's one person who records as a thing you refer to it like a band but it's not a band it's you but anyway thank you so much for being here uh check out her great album and this was today's rolling stone music now we'll be back next week here on sirius xm's volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast download us and subscribe to us at itunes or wherever you get your podcasts Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.